But if you'll find lesson four in those notes, that's what we'll be looking at today. So three down and there are a total of nine. So lesson four today. While you're finding lesson four and getting your notes and getting settled in, let me just remind you of some things that are coming up. We have our midweek Wednesday program every Wednesday uh, at seven o'clock. We have these listed in your program. So I encourage you to look and see what classes are offered for adults, but we also have ministries for every age group. So if you're not accustomed to coming to midweek, I encourage you to do that. We have something for everyone, 7 o'clock on Wednesday night. And then uh, this coming Thursday is the next event for our friends group. That's our 50 and older seniors group, and they're having a game night here at the church this coming Thursday. There was an insert in today's program with regard to that, so... Please take note of that if you fit into that category. And then also there was an insert uh, this week and last and will be again next week for the baby shower for uh, Billy and Madison's uh, little one coming in January. So on Saturday the 16th from 11 to 2, uh, there is a shower. Now it's not like, it's not a drop-in shower. We've had a number of showers uh, in the last few years that drop in any time between a three or four hour window, but this one is... Uh, a three-hour event. In fact, there's lunch provided for, uh, for this one as an incentive for you to hang around for the, for the thing. So 11 to 2 on Saturday, the 16th here. So please mark that on your calendar. And uh, Madison is registered at Babies R Us and, and Target. And then just a few other things. Uh, on December 1st, Sunday night, December 1st, uh, for any uh, of our men really who want to, but especially guys who are leading a ministry or would like to lead a ministry in the church, uh, we are restarting what we call Leadership Institute. And uh, we've had a hiatus on that because of the beginning of our other men's ministry, men's fraternity, and scheduling conflicts with that. But we're starting up Leadership Institute on Sunday nights when we are not meeting for our home community groups. So we'll meet for six weeks or so, and then we'll have community groups, and then we'll have Leadership Institute uh, again. So we'll go through the material that way. Any of you guys who would like to participate in that, I think it would be helpful to you. We'd love to have you as, as part of it. And participating in that is a requirement for being uh, considered for a deacon in our church, uh, being part of our leadership team. If you go through that, it doesn't mean you will be a deacon or even want to be a deacon. But uh, to be considered to be a deacon in our church, you have to participate satisfactorily in Leadership Institute. So the first session of that will start up on Sunday night, the 1st at 6 o'clock here at the Ministry Center. You need to know how many guys are participating. So over the next month, we're going to have you register at the Information Center. There is a manual that we go through for that, and the cost of the manual is $40. Uh, so I apologize for the price, but that's, that's what it costs. That's what it costs us. So, you know, it's a commitment of some money and some time, but we would love as many of you who can, guys, to participate in that. Just two more, long range, uh, in December on the 10th, uh, Tuesday night, I think that is, for the ladies' advent, uh, Christmas advent. And we're going to decorate this room, have tables in here that need to be decorated. And we need you to do two things, ladies. If you want to volunteer to uh, own a table, decorate a table, then do that at the Information Center. If you're not interested in decorating a table and being responsible for that, we just need to know that you're coming so you can register at the Information Center that way also. And then on the 15th of December, our annual Adult Christmas Fellowship. Just mark that on your your calendars uh, coming up uh, Sunday night the 15th. 
All right, uh, I want to mention one other thing for those of you that are new to our church or relatively new, and that's defined as you've never taken our newcomer's orientation. A few times throughout the year, we take a four-week period and we offer that, uh, what we call newcomer's orientation. It's during this hour. It's a, f- a class that I lead uh, for those four weeks. You get a booklet of material. It tells you about uh, who we are, where we came from, what we believe, what we want to be used of God to do in the future. It gets for information for those of you that are new. And throughout the next many weeks, we'll be announcing that and reminding you that it's informational only. It doesn't obligate you to do anything. But it really is something that you ought to check out in order to learn more about us and to help you make a decision as to whether or not this would be the place that God would have you to join and, and serve. So that's why we offer that. The next four-week uh, segment of newcomers orientation is going to be in January. You say, why would you announce that two months away? Because some of you have asked me about that. How can we get more information about the church or how can we look into joining the church? And I encourage all of you who are thinking that way to just hold off to take the four-week newcomer's orientation. It will help you make that decision. So I just want you to know that that is on the horizon, but it will, uh, that will start up in January, okay? All right, today, lesson four in From Self-Help to God's Help. And what we have seen thus far on the left page of your notes, you see that chart. And we've been looking at uh, that chart from week one to give us an overview, a flyover of how God sees our lives and and our situations in totality. And we have it on the sheet there, and I think we have it on the screen as well. Is that slide available? Thank you. Um, Same thing you have on on the sheet. And you notice it has four major uh, sections to it. The top is the heat of life. And then on the right, you have the thorns that can develop based upon our responses to the heat of life. And then at the bottom, but crucial, is the cross, because it is the cross and Christ the Redeemer that transforms our responses to our circumstances in life from developing thorns to developing uh, fruit. And the key difference between those uh, two, thorns versus fruit, is the root at the bottom. You see you've got the heart there. And on the right side for the thorns, it's a negative heart. It's a sinful response. It's an an unhealthy response to our situations that then produces thorns. But a Christ-like response, an appropriate response, a righteous response, then produces fruit in our lives. And we've spent one week looking at that overall perspective. And then the last two sessions, we've looked at the first of those four items, the the heat of life, our our various situations in which a sovereign God places us. They may not be the situations that we would have chosen for ourselves, but God has chosen them for us. We may not know what He has in mind to teach us in this particular situation, but, but He does have items to teach us in the circumstances He allows. And so that's the heat. That's the, the situation. And now we're going to spend two weeks beginning today on unhelpful, unhealthy, sinful responses to those situations that produce the thorns today and in a few weeks. Now, why do I say in a few weeks? Because most of you know I will be gone the next two Sundays. So I'm leaving Thursday to go and see my dear daughter down at Clearwater Christian College and then I'm coming back on Saturday, and then I'm leaving the next day, next Sunday, to fly to China for just about, be there for about two weeks. 
So I will miss a total of uh, two Sundays uh, for that. So if you guys will pray about that. The next two Sundays, Brother Zach Hamilton will be teaching this class. He will not be teaching this material. I'll just pick that up when I come, when I come back. So Zach is going to teach on something else for the next two weeks. And then uh, when I return, we'll do th- the second part of Thorns. And then we'll have two lessons on the cross and two lessons on, on fruit. Okay? So today, lesson four, ask the question you see at the top, what entangles you? And the big question that we're seeking to answer is, how do I typically respond to the circumstances and relationships, that is the heat, that God has placed in my life right now? And what is it that happens as, as a result? Paul Tripp, who wrote the book from which this series is taken, so that chart uh, and these, these lessons are taken from uh, an extremely helpful book called How People Change. I have that footnoted on the first, first page for you, but I remind you of that. Some of you have purchased that book. If you haven't, then uh, if you are so inclined, uh, that would be a good book for you to own for your library, How People Change. But in it, he tells a story about an embarrassing situation in his own life uh, that perhaps you can relate to. He had worked, he had needed a ride home uh, from his wife, and uh, she said that uh, she would pick him up at uh, 6 o'clock, but uh, at uh, 6.15, she shows up. She told him she was only five minutes away, and he was tired, and so he's waiting outside. And so it's only 10 minutes longer than she actually said, but a long day, her not uh, being there, as soon as possible. When we got off the phone, she knew that she needed to leave right away to get here in five minutes. She, she didn't do it. Doesn't she know I've worked a 12-hour day? He got in the car. He was frustrated. He's mad at her. Uh, she wanted to talk. He doesn't want to talk. And so it's one of those little incidents that happens in life uh, where, uh, that we allow to happen in life where we allow the, the heat, the situation, small situation like that, to morph into tension in our relationships. And he says, you know, I quickly caught myself. God convicted my heart. I realized that I was, I was wrong, and uh, I was able to open up and, and talk to her and then to move on. But he says something that is very true. It's those kinds of situations that reveal something about our hearts, even in the so-called small stuff. And I just want to say to you, friends, sweat the small stuff. Because life is lived in the details. Life is lived in the everyday. It's not just the big stuff. And in fact, the small stuff prepares you for the big stuff. And you and I need to check our reactions in the so-called small things. And the reason that so many of us don't do that is because we are too easily satisfied with where we are. I've gotten the big stuff taken care of. I mean, man, if you knew me before, you know, you wouldn't believe what I was like, and I don't do that anymore, and I don't carouse, and I don't do, which thank God for all of that. But then that's good enough for us. And we then continue to live in the details of life with responses that are contrary to Christ-like responses. And they continue to create tension and worse in our relationships and circumstances that are the thorns that develop in, develop in our lives. 
And so the good news is we, like Paul Tripp, can see manifestations of God's grace in our lives. You know, he, he saw that. He saw that that was a wrong response. He caught himself. That's good. But we should not be satisfied with that. We should ask ourselves, why do I get so irritated so quickly? And why do I shoot off at the mouth as quickly as I do? Or maybe I don't shoot off at the mouth. Maybe my personality is just to clam up and, and brood about it or pout about it. But it's very clear that things are not not good to those who are around me. Now, in order for that to happen, in order for you to be willing to look at yourself, for me to look at myself intensely in the mirror of God's Word, I mean, Scripture compares itself to a mirror into which we are to look, James chapter 1. And those of us who, who look and behold ourselves in the mirror of the Word of God, but come away without changing, are compared to the foolishness of somebody who would look in a natural mirror, a regular mirror, see what needs to be changed, hair is unkempt, face needs to be washed, you need to shave, whatever it is, and nothing changes and you go off to work or school or whatever it is. And none of us would think about doing that, but we do it all the time as it relates to the mirror of the Word of God. So in order for us to sweat the small stuff because life is lived in the details and to see where it is we still need to grow in Christ's likeness, it means I need to be willing to look into the mirror of Scripture, see what's there, and not only, change, not only have to change it, want to change it. I mean, think about that. Shouldn't that be something you want and that I want? So why don't we? Well, I've got a theory. You know, most of us look at ourselves comparing and contrasting ourselves to other people. And the truth is, as I compare myself to other people, contrast myself against other people, overall I'm doing okay. I mean, I know I got my stuff, but they've got real, they've got junk. I've got stuff, they got junk. Okay? So, you know, if I don't get my things, my little things straightened out, the world's not going to end, everybody will, be, everybody will be okay, and if more people, frankly, could be like me, the world would be a better place. Now, that's kind of the way we think. I'm not that bad. And the truth is most of us are not that bad compared and contrasted with other people. But who's the standard for you? Who's the standard for me? We know what my answer is going to be because I'm a preacher type. <laughs> but forget being a preacher type. What is the answer for us? What is the, who is the standard? It's not other people. It's not your spouse. It's not your coworkers. It's Jesus. Now I just want to up, you know, up the stakes here a little bit. All right, yep, Pastor, I agree with you. Everybody here, I'd, I'd be willing to wager, agrees with me on what I just said. Yep, Jesus is the standard. All right, so let me uh, up the stakes a bit. When I look at Scripture, or when I refuse to look at Scripture, but let's assume I'm willing to at least look at it, but I don't see this so-called small stuff as necessary for me to change, here's what I'm saying to Jesus. Being like you is not worth the work. Now, anybody here want to say that? There's probably nobody here that's willing to say that. You know, being like you is not worth the effort. But that's what we're saying 
in the way we handle or refuse to handle the regular responses that we have to the heat that's in our lives. And so I'm trying to say to you, dear friends, and to myself, take this seriously. Because many of us are living with the same stuff over and over and over again. And we've never faced it. We've never been willing to face it and to deal with it. And as a result, in its own, in its own way, it has small stuff that develops over time into the thorns of life. So life is lived in the details, in the messy details of our relationships with one another. And God is calling us to look then at ourselves, not through the prism, the, not through the spectacles of how do I compare or contrast to other people, but to look through the lens of Holy Scripture and God's character. And where am I? And where do I need to change? And to invite that and say, yes, Lord, thank you. That's what I want. I want to be like Jesus. And I don't just want to be like Jesus in the abstract. How many of you don't, don't raise your hands? But how many want to be like Jesus? Everybody raises their hand. But it's all in the abstract, right? Whether or not I really want to be like Jesus is going to be played out when I get in the car to go home. And what happens this afternoon and this coming week? And so I am pleading, can you tell? I'm pleading with you to take that seriously as I need to take it seriously as, as well. And so here's what, here's what happens to us if we fail to do that, as so often, often we do. As sinners, we tend to respond sinfully to the circumstances of life. And so we do these kinds of things. And I'm going to go through a bunch of things that we tend to do that are characteristic for some of us. Some of us do one. Some of us do the other. Some of us do a number of the things I'm going to, to lay out. But see if you find yourself in any of these. We respond sinfully to the circumstances of life by bending and twisting the truth. The checks in the mail. We harbor anger and bitterness. I can't believe that after all I've done for her, she would do this to me. And harbor that. We shift blame. I wanted to do it, but he talked me out of it. We manipulate to get what we want. You're clearly the most qualified person to get this job done. We communicate in harsh, judgmental ways. I would never have done such a thing. I can't believe you could be so dumb. We numb ourselves with busyness, substances, material possessions. I'd like to talk to you about last night, but I'm simply too busy. Or we attempt to get our identity from other people or from our performance. You know, no one in this church has been involved in more ministries than I have. Or we give in to our lusts. We mete out our own vengeance to those who may have hurt us. I want her to hurt the way she hurt me. We get defensive and self-protective. I'd, I'd rather not talk about it. We respond selfishly and thoughtlessly. I don't care what she needs. I need one evening to myself. We talk unkindly about others. We envy what they have. We seek to consolidate power or gain control. We curse one another with our silence or with our rejection, and on and on it goes. Now, if we'll be honest, we find ourselves in one or more of those. And that's the way we relate to the heat, the circumstances of life. And now this is what God's calling us to. 
with regard to church, I've used this phrase, but it's a good phrase to apply to our own personal lives. That God wants each of us to have a holy, H-O-L-Y, discontent with the status quo. A holy discontent with the status quo. I was asked a few years ago by a dear brother when we went to lunch and he said, you know, the way we started the church and the way you decided the way it should be structured and all that, where did you, why did you guys, why did you decide to do it that way? He, he liked it. He wasn't criticizing. He was just saying, why? And I said, you know, I said, for a long while I've had, and it was the first time I used that phrase, I've had a holy discontent with the status quo. You know, I, I, I believe that the church is God's vehicle to to reach the world with the gospel. I believe it's central to God's program. And it's so important that church needs to be done God's way, centered on his word, relationships developed, and people becoming like Jesus. And so we need to structure it in a way to see that happen. But that means you've got to have a holy discontent with the way it is. If that ain't happening, then we need to change it. It's a holy discontent with the way things are. And you need to have that in your life, and I need to have that in my life. A God-honoring, God-glorifying, God-centered discontent with where I am. But if you're satisfied with where you are, you will remain there, and in fact, you will go backwards. But so many Christians are satisfied with where they are because they're better off than everybody else. But the standard is is Jesus. And so God is calling us then to this holy discontent with where we are so that we can then move forward. So Paul Tripp uses the example of a guy he calls John. He was simply too content. He had reached a plateau in his relationship with God. He had strong faith. He was involved in his church. But there were thorns in his life that just weren't going away. He had an explosive temper. He regularly blew up in traffic. He got mad at his wife when they worked together around the house. He could barely control his anger at the officials at his children's athletic events. Yikes, we've all met John. He struggled with with debt. So he has his eye on the next man toy that he he wants to buy. He drove a late model luxury car, lived in a house he couldn't afford. Despite a number of raises at work, a reasonable budget, his materialism led him into, into debt. He had problems in his relationship with his wife. Rather than a relationship of servant love and tenderness and unity, their marriage had the feel of a military detente. They didn't fight a lot. They just lived separate lives and ended each day sleeping in the same bed. Wow. Married on paper, living separate lives, and ending the day in the same bed. That describes what many people call marriage. Meg, his wife, didn't feel close to him. She surrounded herself, therefore, with friends with whom she shared her joys and her her sorrows. There are many John and Megs in our churches because John and or Meg refuse to deal with it. So they go on in their lives, and they go on for years in their lives, and it doesn't get better, it gets worse. They continue to attend church. They put on a happy face at church. They don't have a marriage, they have an existence together. God is calling us to be dissatisfied, to be discontented with that, to be discontent, to be restless, 
to, to be hungry. And so the Christian life could be thought of as thankful discontent or joyful dissatisfaction. Now, where's, how's that? Thankful discontent, thankful that I'm not where I used to be. And we shouldn't dismiss that, thank God. Thank God for His grace in our lives. Thankful but discontent that I'm not where I need to be. Right? Joyful dissatisfaction. The joy of the Lord that He's in, at work in my life and there's evidence that He's at work in my life. But that evidence is becoming harder and harder to see. New evidence is harder and harder to see. I, see, I saw it 10 years ago. I see the results of that. I thank God for that. But where's the evidence of that in the last five years? Where's the evidence of that today? Joyful dissatisfaction, thankful discontent. And so in that sense, it's right for us then to be discontent. God does not want us to enjoy just a small portion of the riches that we have in Jesus and have a partial inheritance from him. He wants us to seize all of that. All of what Jesus is, I am to become like. And until I'm like Jesus, then I'm to have this restlessness, this godly restlessness about where I am. And so I am to engage, you are to engage in a life of self-examination, joyful discontent. But that should not become a paralysis of analysis. You know, navel-gazing all the time. I'm not where I should be. You know, you're constantly looking back at the cross. You're constantly looking back at God's work in your life. And you're thanking God for what he's done. But you're always also, like the great apostle, looking ahead so that you can move, so that you can move ahead. Now, why don't, we, why don't we do this? When we get to the bottom of that chart, uh, we will be looking at the cross and how the cross transforms our hearts. So I'll have occasion to talk about this more. But most of us do one of two things in trying to just paper over where we are rather than deal with where we are. We do one of two things. We try to perform or we try to pretend. Perform or pretend. I try to perform. I don't, I don't want to deal with the heart root issues. It's too hard. It's too hard to look squarely in the mirror and admit that I'm like this. And so instead of doing that, I try to paper it over by performing, by doing stuff. I go to church. I tithe. You know, I, I give regularly. I may even serve in a ministry. I go to work. I cut the lawn. I take out the garbage. I do my duty. I do my stuff. I perform. I'm a good guy or a good gal. We try to perform. And then we say, well, you know, God, look, look, at, all, look at me. Look at all the stuff I did. And God's looking not at the outward appearance. God's looking at what? God's looking at the heart. But we try to perform to paper it over. Or we try to pretend. We try to pretend that it's not as bad as it really is. But the truth is, our hearts are idle factories. We're in the manufacturing business, our hearts are. And we manufacture idols all the time. Idols for peace and quiet. So when I don't get it, I explode, I respond in anger. When I, when I sin in the absence of receiving something, that thing has become an idol to me. I've made that in my heart. 
but I pretend it's not that bad. And that's often by the comparing and contrasting to other people that I mentioned earlier. Now, what should I do? Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter 4. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. In verse 14. Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. And so Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now what does that have to do with the heat of your life and the thorn responses of your heart? Let me just give you six things that that passage tells us about ourselves as it relates to God in our circumstances. That passage teaches us that God's not surprised by our struggle. He already sees the whole problem. God's never shocked or caught off guard. This is precisely why he sent Christ to earth. The reason we had a high priest, the Son of God, who came is because God knows the problem. He knows how deep the problem is. So the first thing you see in that is God's not surprised. The second thing is... The Bible's for people like you and me. Verse 15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. And thirdly, Christ enters into our struggle because he's been there. He faced the full range of temptations I do. He knows what it's like to face them. So God's not surprised. The Bible's for people like you and me. Christ enters into the struggle. He came and entered into the struggle. He knows what it's like. But fourthly, He will help. I can be confident, you can be confident that we're not alone in our struggle. Jesus gives mercy and grace appropriate to my need and just when I need it. I'm going to give you five and six, but that's what the Word of Almighty God says. And do you see, dear friend, what you're forfeiting when you say, I'm good enough? Jesus will help you. He'll help you where you are. He will help you get from where you are to where you need to go. 
But as long as you and I are unwilling to look at it and face it and want to deal with it, we will not change and we will forfeit the mercy that he makes available to us. Fifth, Christ pleads our case to the Father. He's our high priest. In every struggle that I have, I've got an advocate with the Father in Jesus, and he will continue to plead my case until we are safely home forever. And then sixthly, I can come to God with confidence because of all of that. I don't have to clean myself up. I don't have to perform and pretend. I don't have to minimize the struggles that I have. I can come just as I am and receive what I need. In times of struggle, I don't run from the Lord. I can run to Him and receive the grace that He alone gives. And so, this is good news. In the thorns that you see in your life, that list that I went through, you might have seen one, two, or all of them in your life. But the good news is this. Moving from there to fruit responses is not a matter of your performance, your maturity, how much you know about the Bible, not your personal perfection. It's not rooted in how good you are and your reputation, how successful you've been whether in ministry or otherwise, your hope is in Christ and Christ promises to help. So, in lesson four on your sheet, we have Ephesians 4 and 5 listed for you there. Ephesians 4 and 5. And because of all that, because of all that you have in Christ and that I have in Christ, Paul, who wrote Ephesians, is telling us in Ephesians 4, 17, all the way through chapter, chapter 6, he's telling us, don't live like the pagans live. You're a new person in Christ now. That new person that you are, that new position that you have in Christ, now needs to be increasingly evident in your daily living. And that's what he's calling us to now in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. Prior to Ephesians 4.17, what Paul, who wrote it, has done is he has laid out all that God in Christ has done for us. Chapter 1, going back to before the beginning of the world, before the foundation of the world. God predestining us. Yikes. And determining that at a point in time, he would call us to himself in Jesus. And then in chapter 2, it talks about what he did in time that the Holy Spirit moved upon our hearts that were dead in trespasses and in sins, and he made us spiritually alive in Christ. So that we were now able to believe what we not only didn't believe, couldn't believe. For it is by grace you have been saved through believing, through faith. And not from, that not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. What's not from yourselves? Faith. That's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Verse 10 of Ephesians 2, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then in chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father. <laughs> and then he breaks off. If you look at the NIV, it's got a little dash. 
at the end of verse 1, breaks off in verse 2 and says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that has been given to me for you. And he goes on to talk about how God has given him an assignment to declare the marvelous riches of the gospel and the centrality of this new community called the church in God's program to carry out his work. And Paul is saying, and you're part of that. Can you believe that? And he ends that whole thing at the end of chapter 3 by saying, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church throughout all ages. In Christ Jesus. Amen. Chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, I urge you then, as a prisoner for the Lord, to live a life worthy, consistent of the calling that you've received. He goes on to talk about now, just a summary of, remember this calling. You've been called out of the world now. You're not to be like the world. And that brings us to verse 17 in your notes. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord. So sometimes I get a little bossy. You know, it's like, look, we got to do this. This is not optional. We've played optional too long. So, but I'm in good company. (laughs) I tell you this, I insist on it in the Lord, says Paul. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity, having given themselves over to sensuality so to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of Him and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, because of all of that, each of you must, and then we're going to read on. But again, I just stop here. Uh, I I think this will be my last bossy statement. But okay, are you going to stop there? Am I going to stop there and say, I can take that or leave it? It's uh, it's optional? Or thanks Jesus for all that stuff in chapters 1 through 3? Let's leave it at that. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Dear friends, I'm going to read that one again because it nails every person here. No unwholesome talk. Only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, 
rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ, in, just as in Christ God forgave you. So, what is the great apostle saying? In verses 17 through 24 of that passage, he sets up a contrast. There's the Gentile old way of life, thorn bush. John, focus in on that next uh, slide, if you would. It's got the so you know on the right you've got the thorns. And what Paul is contrasting now in verses 17 to 24 is the thorn bush way of life. It's the the heart the the sinful heart that gives then rise to thorn bush as its as its fruit. And it's rooted in wrong thinking, verse 17, wrong desires, and it results in wrong responses to life. It's got a whole catalog of responses. Impurity, lying in verse 25, destructive anger, stealing, unwholesome communication, fighting, slander, an unforgiving spirit. And we cannot celebrate the wonderful things Christ has given us and be content with that kind of sin in our lives. And so is that kind of stuff still there? Let me answer that for you. Yeah. It's there for you and it's there for me. Some, because we all have different experiences, we all have different personalities, and so we've all got different kinds of heat, so some of these things are manifest more obviously in some of us than in others, but we've all got some of them to one degree or another. And saying it's optional is not an an option. In verses 20 to 24, he contrasts the old Gentile approach, pagan approach, the thorn bush approach, with the new way, the fruit tree approach. And that's rooted in a new way of thinking, according to verses 20 through 22, a new set of desires. You had the wrong way of thinking, you had the, the wrong desires, now you've got new ones, says Paul. And they result in new responses. Now speaking the truth. Now being angry at the right things, unrighteousness. And settling accounts before you go to bed every night. Don't let the sun go down while you are angry. A lifestyle of giving, of kindness, compassion, forgiving one another. Those are the fruit tree responses. And as our transformed hearts bear fruit in godly responses, then Paul who wrote that shows us that change is going to come in a catalog of human situations. All the way through chapter 5 now, that we have listed for you, all the way through chapter 6. We're not going to read that because we don't have time, but in chapter 5 it's about husbands and wives. It's about employers and employees. Chapter 6 begins, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Chapter 6 and verse 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. These are in just the regular, do you remember I said that life is lived in the details? Isn't that what God is telling us? Life's lived there. Life's lived in the four walls of your home every week. That's where these thorns or this fruit are going to come about, in those kinds of relationships. You go on into chapter 6 and you come to this famous passage that starts in verse 10. Be strong in the Lord 
and to put on the, the full armor of God so that you can engage in spiritual warfare. Now, there's a lot of talk about spiritual warfare. And it's like exorcisms, and it's like casting out demons, and it's all of that. And it's really interesting that the most extensive passage in the epistles, in the letters of your New Testament, they root spiritual warfare in stuff at home, stuff at work. Not in fantastic exorcisms, casting out demons, all of that. Whether or not we're engaging in that and engaging in that fully is going to be seen in the small stuff of life. So, let's, uh, let's make it personal. If we're going to have this lifestyle of joyful discontent, holy dissatisfaction, it means looking at yourself in terms of either the fruit tree or that, or that thorn bush. So consider your responses to these questions. What are your thorns? Complaining, laziness, anger, envy, lust, bitterness, avoidance, pride, indifference, hard words, blame, a judgmental spirit, greed, a lack of self-control, and on it goes. What are yours? Your thorn responses. Where do your actions and your responses fail to demonstrate the fruit of faith? In your current situation, in your current relationships, how are you responding sinfully? Where are you experiencing the consequences of those responses? Where, are you given, where have you given way to anger or envy? Where have you quit doing what God says is good? To whom have you spoken unkindly? Where have you blamed others? When have you accused God? Are you dealing with your feelings in unhealthy ways? Spending, working, escaping in whatever escapism you can find? So, I want to go through a list of more thornbush kinds of responses and then look at what fruit kinds of responses would look like. But alas, I don't have time. So we will pick this up in three weeks. In the meantime, you guys will all come back as big fat thorn bushes because we didn't finish our lesson. <laughs> but really, let's conclude by asking God to help us to put into practice at least some of what we've heard. If nothing else, dear friends, if you come out of this room and you say, I'm going to engage in the fight, I'm going to have a holy discontent with a status quo, I'll praise God for that. And then let's engage the fight together over these next few weeks, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us and that your love is evident to us in so many ways, some of them that are not immediately obvious, but very, very, very real. Lord, you love us so much that your love is better than unconditional because you refuse to leave us where we are. And your Holy Spirit is fighting a fight within us so that our hearts are wooed away from the world and our thornbush responses to our Savior and our Creator. And so, Lord, your love is shown to us by, by engaging in the battle for our hearts. It's shown to us by giving us timely, relevant instruction in your Word 
for how our hearts need to be transformed by the Redeemer so that fruit rather than thorns are the result. So, Lord, thank you for not leaving me where I am. I thank you, Lord God, that I'm not where I was. But, Lord, I thank you for granting a measure of discontent and dissatisfaction with where I am. And I pray that each of us would would have that together. That until we are responding in the heat of life the way Jesus responded and displaying the character of our Redeemer in every situation of life, we cannot, should not, do not want to rest. So thank you for granting us that desire. I thank you for these dear, these dear friends who have come because they want to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Help us over these next few weeks. I pray this next coming two weeks that you'll bless Brother Zach as he presents your word to your people. We ask that you'll grant us safety as we travel to speak to your people in another part of your world. We ask you to bring us back safely next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.